You've suffered through three weeks of vision, and we're now doing an eight-week series on Jesus, which is going to be fun. So we're doing um, the seven I am statements in John's gospel, and we're talking about how they relate to the seven miracles, the seven signs that are also in John's gospel. And John, if you've ever read his gospel, you'll know that from chapter one, he goes in strong, whereas the other gospels kind of start with the kind of the baby thing and the birth of Jesus, and it's kind of slow going, apart from that's pretty fast but certainly Matthew and Luke it's fairly slow and it's kind of a narrative John goes straight in with his theological treatise of who Jesus is and the reason why John basically has these seven I am statements I am the bread of life I am the resurrection of life all these statements that Jesus makes coupled with the seven miracles or signs so he raises Lazarus from the dead or he feeds 5,000 people with one packed lunch the reason he puts those two things together because John is trying to make this point throughout his gospel that who Jesus is shapes what Jesus does. Who Jesus is shapes what Jesus does. And I would argue that this is a truth of all of humanity as well. Who we are, our identity shapes what we do. Who we are shapes our purpose in life. You can see this as we look out, particularly in the political realm at the moment. I promise never, ever to comment on politics in this church. I promise I will never do that. But as you look out on the country, you see that our identity is split down the middle. Literally 50% of our country think one way. This is who we are as a country. 50% think this way. And therefore, what has happened is, as as a country, we have no sense of identity between all of us. And therefore, we don't actually know what to do. There's chaos as a result. It's exactly the same in the political parties. You could break it down even more. Each party is split down the middle. They have no core sense of identity and therefore they don't really know what to do. And that's why our country is crying out for leadership. It's crying out for someone to stand up and say, this is who I am. This is what I believe our country is about and this is what we're going to do. But unfortunately we don't have that. Personally, we see that, oh, that was a comment on politics, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have done that. Personally, we also see this the case, that if we don't know who we are, we don't know what to do. It's been said before that um, basically our life is just a series of crises of identity. So you have the toddler crisis, where basically you grow up and you begin to realise that actually you're not one and the same as, his, as your parents, okay? And you have the toddler crisis, and you have what's called separation anxiety. Essentially, you're having this crisis because you don't know who you are, you suddenly realise that you're a separate person and you act out and roll over the floor and throw things around and do lots of horrible things like that and it causes parents to pull their hair out. There's also the teenage crisis where as a teenager suddenly you go, oh my goodness, that's my parents. I want nothing to do with them. I never want to see them ever again. I don't want to be seen with them in public. I'm going to do everything my parents don't do. I'm going to make sure that I do. There's the teenage crisis and then there's the midlife crisis which essentially is where it kind of happens around my age, 33 and upwards. You suddenly realize, Oh my goodness, is all I've done is become one of my parents. And it's horrific. And it's one crisis after another. Who we are shapes our sense of purpose. And the thing is, it's the same for the person of Jesus. As you look in the Gospels, as you read about his life and his ministry and his mission, who he says he is, who others say he is, and what he does out of that place of identity, you realize that it's the identity of Jesus that shapes his purpose and what he does. And so this series is about the person of Jesus. It's about the identity of Jesus, but it's also about the way Jesus' identity shapes his purpose and his mission. But... 
for eight weeks. We could talk about that, and there's lots to talk about. I mean, it would be a really fun series to do. But I want to dig down even deeper on this idea of identity leading to purpose, or who the sense of who we are leading to our mission and what we do. And the way I want to dig deeper is I want to suggest, and this is in line with what actually Christianity suggests in general, is that our identity as Christians is actually deeply deeply shaped by Jesus' identity. That actually it's out of Jesus' identity that we have our core identity. And it's out of Jesus' purpose that we gain our core purpose. If you don't know whose you are, you don't know what to do. Who Jesus is defines who we are. It shapes our purpose in life. And so there's four questions that we're going to keep coming back to over the next eight weeks. You'll be glad to know that it won't be me every week. We're hearing from lots of different people, but these guys are going to keep coming back to these questions. First question is, who is Jesus? This is the most important question anyone could ever ask themselves in their life. Now, I don't know where you are right now. I don't know if you've been coming to church for a couple of weeks. And when, if someone to ask you, who is Jesus, actually, you wouldn't be able to articulate an answer. That's absolutely fine. That's exactly why we're doing this series. It's a really good place to be because as we unpack who Jesus is and who other people say Jesus is and how his mission actually reflects who he is as a person, it is going to blow your mind. It's going to be amazing and really, really fun. Um, There'll be others of us who have been here for 30 years and we come to church because that's just what you do on Sundays, and that is absolutely fine as well. But what I want to say is, over these next eight weeks, could you possibly question yourself again and say, do I know who Jesus actually is? Who is Jesus? And then the second question we're going to be answering over the next eight, eight weeks is, if his identity shapes his purpose, then what was the purpose of Jesus? So we've got the seven I am's. This is the identity of Jesus. I am this, I am that. And then we've got the seven miracles, the seven signs. And what the seven signs are to John and what he's trying to communicate through his gospel is that this is the purpose of Jesus outworked through his identity in the I am statements. So who is Jesus? What's the purpose of Jesus? You might think, well, okay, I'm kind of on board with the idea that Jesus is God. I think that's, you know, I I get that. That's what Christianity is about. But I don't understand how that impacts on his life. I don't understand understand what his death on the cross actually means. I don't understand about his resurrection. And if it is that you, and please be brutally honest with yourselves, I think that's absolutely fine. It's a good place to start because over these next eight weeks, we're going to be unpacking. And the crucial thing to ask yourself when you're thinking about the purpose of Jesus, this is one of the best ways to discover it, is to ask, what what did Jesus think the meaning of the cross was? What did Jesus think the meaning of his resurrection was? And as you ask yourself those questions, you'll begin to realize this deep sense of purpose that runs throughout his life and that's founded in his identity. Third question we're going to ask, and this is to go even deeper, who are we in the light of who Jesus is? What is our identity in the light of who Jesus is. I'm going to come back to that. And then out of that, if identity shapes purpose, what is our purpose in the light of the purpose of Jesus? So four questions, eight weeks. Hopefully by the end of the eight weeks, you haven't left the church. Okay, so John 8. Let's start with who Jesus is. This was our reading from Ajoma. And um, essentially, a little bit of context of this reading. Um, Jesus' ministry has gathered quite a bit of momentum by this point, And essentially, people are really starting to ask questions about who he is. He's starting to make even bolder claims about his identity. He's starting to do even more unbelievable miracles. And as a result, he's gathered quite a following. And they're all starting to ask themselves, who is this guy? Like, look at what he's doing. Look at who he's claiming to be. This is unbelievable. Who is this? 
Like, we don't understand this person's identity. And so they're having an argument. And this is how the argument goes. This is Jesus. He says, very truly, I tell you, whoever obeys my word will never see death. Huge statement. He's starting to make huge statements now. At this, they exclaimed, understandably so. Now we know you're demon-possessed. Abraham died and so did the prophets, yet you say that whoever obeys your word will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died and so did the prophets. Who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? And then we skip. Let's skip down a few verses. Jesus says, very truly I tell you, before Abraham was born, I am. At this, they picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself, slipping away among the temple grounds. So Jesus makes this huge, huge claim that if you believe in me, if you obey my teaching, you will never die. What's the most common thing amongst all of humanity? It's that we all die. Jesus arrives on the scene and he says, guess what? If you listen to what I'm teaching, if you obey me, if you believe in me, if you put your trust in me, you will never die. You will see eternity. And understandably so. They say, who do you think you are? And this is his response. When this works. And it stopped. Okay, let's see if that ever comes back. This will be interesting if it doesn't. So this is his response. He essentially says there in verse 58, he says, before Abraham was born, I am. Before Abraham was born, I am. Let's see if we can lay. There we go. Good. Before Abraham was born, I am. So here's the key question that we need to ask ourselves of this passage. Why did that one statement made by Jesus cause everyone around him to want to stone him? Like, it doesn't make sense, does it? If, if we were walking around in Broccoli and you were introducing yourself to new people and said, hi, I'm Jim, nice to meet you, what's your name? And you say, oh, really nice to meet you, I am. And I think the person would probably look at you fairly strange, but they wouldn't want to stone you, they might want to section you, but they wouldn't want to stone you. Like, why is that so offensive to the Jewish hearers of the time? Well, in order to be able to understand that, we need to go back to the story of Exodus. So Exodus is at the beginning of the Bible, it's basically the story of the people of God as they're being led out of slavery into freedom. And so the context of this little short passage I'm going to read is essentially Israel has spent 400 years in slavery to the nation of Egypt, to the Egyptians, essentially the superpower of the time. And Moses is in exile because he basically killed one of the Egyptians and he fled and he's been a shepherd for 40 years. And as he's on the hillside tending to his sheep, he sees this burning bush. It's a famous passage in the Old Testament. He sees this burning bush and the bush starts to talk to him and it's God's voice coming to him. And in this burning bush, in kind of this dialogue between Moses and God, God essentially gives Moses a mission. So this is this conversation and here it is. So God says, so now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses says to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? It's a fair enough question. Like God's saying to this guy who's been in exile for 40 years, he's a shepherd. He had to flee because he killed one of the Egyptians. God's saying to him, I need you to go back to where you came from, to where they're basically they've got a, a bounty out for your head to kill you. And I want you to go to the most powerful person in the world right now and say all of those slaves that you have that are basically making you great, that are creating your kingdom, I want you just to let them go. Just let them go. And then Moses says, who am I? 
to be, able to, to be able to go and do that. It doesn't make any sense. But notice, God doesn't even answer that question. God said, I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God says to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you're to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. These are basically heroes of the Israelites' faith, heroes of the people of Israel, God's people. The God of those people has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name you should call me from generation to generation. Moses is given this mission by God to do the impossible. And basically he says to God, how can I possibly do that And God answers Moses, I am who I am. So the Hebrew word for I am basically means to be. It's translated directly as um, Yahweh. And so in the ancient times when God or anyone really revealed their name to somebody else, basically it was saying two things. Firstly, it was a revelation of identity. So here's God to Moses revealing who he is to him. Now the thing about God in general in the times of Moses was actually there was only one word that anyone ever used for God. It was Elohim. And basically it was a universal word that all ancient Near Eastern religions would have used so as to relate to God. And so the God of Israel was essentially by name no different to any of the other gods at the time. So Moses would have known God as Elohim. But now here is God basically saying to Moses, I am giving you my actual name and it's Yahweh. I am who I am. Reveal something of identity. But it's so much more than that. Because in ancient times, it wasn't just about identity. It was also an invitation into relationship. So God is basically saying to Moses, I'm revealing to you who I am, but I want to be in relationship with you. I want to be on first name terms with you. And this was a huge moment in Old Testament history. It was a turning point from the people of God. They've gone from thinking and knowing they've, they've got a distinct purpose because of the call on Abraham's life. They know that they're supposed to be a light to the nations, but it's all a bit mysterious when it comes to who their God actually is. They know that their creation narrative in Genesis is very different to the creation narrative of other ancient Near Eastern religions, but they don't actually know who God is. And then suddenly to Moses, God says, this is my name. It reveals who I am. And it reveals that I want a relationship, a special relationship with you. And so understandably for the Israelites, this Hebrew word, Yahweh, I am, was incredibly precious to them. It was so holy to them. It was so precious that they wouldn't even use it. When they would write down God's name, they would substitute it in or they'd take letters out. They came up with other names for God like master or literally just the name. That's how they would refer to God because it was so precious to them. The point is that for the Jewish people, this name was so precious because it spoke of the intimacy and the identity of the one true God of the universe. So remember our original question. Why did the people want to stone Jesus when he said that, when he spoke to them and said, who are you? Who on earth are you? And he says, I am. This is why. He's basically saying, I am Yahweh. I am God. It is a huge claim, and it's utterly 
offensive to the religious people of the time. Up until this point, throughout Old Testament history, the focus is essentially on the otherness of God. How God is set apart, how he's distant, how we're not able to actually reach him. Everything changes in the person of Jesus. And this, essentially, is what this whole eight-week series is all about. It hinges on the identity of Jesus. Everything changes when he reveals who God is. And it's so much more than Jesus saying, I am God. It's, I mean, that is a huge statement in and of itself. But it's so much more than Jesus saying, I am God. Because when you couple the seven I am statements, you start to realize he's not just claiming to be God. He's actually showing us what God is like. I am the bread of life. I can satisfy that hunger deep at the core of your soul in the most unbelievable way possible. I'm going to show you exactly what God is like. And just so you really get the point, I'm going to feed 5,000 people with a loaf of bread because I'm not thinking simply on human terms here and I'm not acting on human terms. This is Jesus showing us what God is really like. And so the I am statements we're going to be doing the next seven weeks. I am the true vine. Basically, you will experience unbelievable fruitfulness if you remain in me, if you have a relationship with me. I am the bread of life. I just talked about it. Satisfy your hunger spiritually. I am the gate. That's quite Jewish. In fact, a lot of these sayings are quite Jewish. So over the weeks, we'll be explaining exactly what they mean. So when Jesus says them in first century context, the hearers would have kind of understood what he's saying. But when we read it, we're like, I am the gate? That doesn't make any sense whatsoever. So we'll explain that. I am the resurrection and the life. That makes more sense. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. I'm the good shepherd. I'm the light of the world. And then, of course, we have these seven signs, the seven miracles that accompany the seven statements. He says he turns water into the wine. I'm the true vine. The feeding of the 5,000, we said. If you want to know what Jesus is like in terms of the resurrection and life, well, here we go. I'll show you. I'm going to raise Lazarus from the dead. I'm going to wait three days until I actually do it, and he's going to stink. Um, I am the good shepherd. He walks on water. I'll explain that more as we go through. I'm the light of the world. If you really want to know what it looks like to be the light of the world, I'm going to heal someone right here who's been born with blindness, and he'll be able to see once again. John is saying that God's being shapes his doing. And as I said, throughout these next seven weeks, I want us to go even deeper. If our identity is only really truly found in Jesus' identity, what does that mean for us? What's the impact on us? How does God's being shape our being? Well, I'm going to begin to answer that this week. Um, This is the beginning of John's gospel. So we're staying exclusively in John's gospel. This is right at the beginning. He says this in chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Just pause there. So essentially, any Jew hearing that, hearing Jesus, John say that, or reading it written down, basically that would have brought to mind Genesis 1. What happens at Genesis 1? God says, in the beginning, or the writer of Genesis, in the beginning. Essentially what he's alluding to here is this is something new. This is something new. In the beginning, the word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that had the Wait, that doesn't make sense. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The word became flesh. We skipped a few verses, verse 14. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Skip to verse 18. No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in the closest relationship with the Father. 
has made him known. So what is John saying there? John is basically making three unbelievable statements. First, he's saying that in Jesus, there is a new creation. You've heard the creation narrative. You know how it went wrong. You've seen the effect on the people of God throughout the whole of the Old Testament. Here is Jesus, and he is recreating you. This is a brand new beginning. Everything that you thought thought defined you before now is totally redefined in the person of Jesus. Second amazing thing he's saying, Jesus is fully human. Verse 14, the word became flesh. This was unbelievable for any religion of the time. The idea that God would put on human flesh, would become a person, was unfathomable. It wouldn't have made any sense, except this is what Jesus is saying. The word became flesh. And then finally, unbelievable statement number three, Jesus is fully God. So, fully human, fully God. How does it work in terms of him recreating our identity? Well, this is what the Bible, this is what John says here, and this is what the Bible says throughout the Old Testament. If we really understand that Jesus is fully human and fully God, as humanity, this has profound implications on who we are. Because the truth is, as we believe in Jesus as both fully human and fully divine, he has the power to recreate us to who we were originally supposed to be. Let me explain that. So the whole of the Bible narrative, right? You've got heaven, where God is, and you've got earth, where we are, humanity. The point of the Bible is those two places were never meant to be separate. We read about that in the Garden of Eden. We have glimpses of that in the temple worship, as we read in the Old Testament. And in Revelation, we see the final point where actually those two places will become one again. How does it happen? Well, Paul explains it like this in Colossians. He says, Jesus is the invisible God, the image of the invisible God, and he's reconciling all things to himself by his blood on the cross. And so by dying on the cross, by being resurrected from the dead, Jesus is essentially, by being fully human and being fully God, reconciling everything that is incompatible with heaven. That includes us, by the way, and bringing it together again so that we are recreated into who we're originally created to be. The reason the identity of Jesus and the purpose of Jesus, what he actually does, has such a profound impact on our identity and on our purpose is because he is giving us the way back to how we were originally created to be. Made in the image, we read in Genesis 1, and likeness. I talked about this last week. The idea of being made in the image and likeness of God is essentially that we are divine. That we're both fully human and fully divine. Okay. What do we need to do in order to be able to see this happen? And I'm finishing now. So if that was the beginning of John's gospel, this has been a whistle-top tour of the gospel. This is the end of John's gospel, John 20. A lot of scholars believe that this is the actual end of John's gospel. There's a few more chapters on top of it, but they were actually added later. And John kind of summarizes his gospel here, so it's worth reading. It says in verse 30 of chapter 20, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples. Just to say, by the way, when Jesus performs a miracle, um, often it's referred to as a sign. And by definition, a sign is basically not an end in and of itself. So when we see God do amazing miracles, it's not like we're supposed to bow down and worship the miracle and be like, that is an amazing miracle. That would be like worshiping a sign or treating the sign as an end in and of itself. It makes no sense. The whole point of the miracle, the seven signs that are in John's gospel, is it points back to who Jesus is. So many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not recorded in this book. 
But these are written, these seven, with these seven I am statements, that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Basically, that's a um, Greek word for savior. He was the savior, the son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. John 10.10, Jesus says, I have come so that you may have life and life in all its fullness. Fullness of life is about believing in Jesus. If we want fullness of life, it makes sense that we need to know who we are. We need to know our core identity. If we want fullness of life, it makes sense that actually we need some sort of purpose, some sort of overarching meaning to our life. John's claim is that in the person of Jesus, both of those things can be found. And this is what we'll be unpacking over the next eight weeks. But just to give you a little bit of a start, um, John's Gospel who wrote John? Actually, scholars don't really know. It's not a trick question. Um, John could have been John, James, and Peter, that John. It could have been another John. Nobody really agrees. The only thing that scholars actually agree is that they refer to him as the beloved disciple. If you read John, you'll realize that he's a bit like Trump in that he refers to himself in third person. He often says, um, the disciple whom Jesus, he's nothing like Trump, just in that way, third person way. Um, the disciple whom Jesus loved. Okay, and it's a bit awkward. When we read it, we're like, well, that's, if you may say so yourself, it's slightly awkward. He says, the disciple whom Jesus loved. What's he saying there? Well, basically, he says it again and again and again. And because we don't know the identity of John, essentially scholars refer to him as the beloved disciple. Basically, what he's saying there is in light of these seven I am statements that I've heard from the person of Jesus, and he would have been there for all of them, in light of basically the purpose that I've seen Jesus live out, these seven signs that represent what these seven I am statements actually mean. In light of all of that, this is the only thing I can conclude, that God loves me, that I am his beloved. There's a famous um, bloke basically in America um, who led a church at the turn of the century called Robert Cornwall and um, he was in Oregon and he arrived in Oregon and he was taken on this church and he essentially went to the local hospital and said look I've just arrived I'm leading this church I'd love to know how I can bless you as a hospital is there anything I can do and the warden of the hospital um, was like ah, I can't really think of anything um, and then basically said well there is this one thing that you might be able to do and he led him through all these corridors, windy corridors of the hospital, got right to the back end of the hospital. And on this door, basically with a ton of padlocks on, uh, was the number 37. And he said, look, would you mind spending an hour with these guys in here? And if I saw that, I'd be legging it. Any, any door with lock on, it's never worth going in. Anyway, um, he says, could you spend an hour with these guys? He unlocks all the locks, pushes them in, shuts the door. He gets in and he realizes that quite quickly he's out of his depth. There's 37 patients in there who are suffering from various degrees of psychosis. And back in the day, they had no idea what to do with these people. So essentially, they put them all in one room and they locked the door. And so they sent um, this guy in, Robert Cornwall, in. And so he's there and he's like, I have no idea what to do now. And so he said, God, what do I do? Like, what am I supposed to do right now? And he felt like God said to him, just sing, just worship. And so he sat in the middle of the room. Everybody is basically stoned on their meds. They don't even interact with him, can't even speak to him. And he sits down and he starts singing. And he sings that song, Yes, Jesus Loves Me. Do you know that one? Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes. Basically sings that, one minute passes. Sings it again, a couple of minutes pass. For a whole hour, he sings that song on repeat. 
the warden comes, opens the door, lets him go, and he goes. Next week, he comes back again, and the warden puts him back in the same room for an hour. He sits in the middle of the room on the floor, and he sings a song again. Nothing happened last time. Doesn't expect anything to happen this time. Yes, Jesus loves me. Sings this song over and over again. Nothing happens for the hour. He leaves. Third week, he comes back. This guy's a sucker. Comes back, and he's given the access to this door again. He goes into room 37. He sits down. He starts singing. About half an hour into this little worship session that this guy has, surrounded by 37 psychiatric patients, a woman suddenly stands up and walks from across the other side of the room and sits down next to Robert Cornwall and starts singing along with him. Yes, Jesus loves me. Singing the song again and again and again. Within six months, 36 out of those 37 patients have basically been taken out of room 37 and were put onto normal wards. Within a year, all 37 of them had been released from hospital, and a ton of them ended up serving in this guy's church. That is an unbelievable story. Here's the question that I think we should ask ourselves out of that, and that we should be asking ourselves throughout the next eight weeks. Do you know right now that the truest, truest thing about you is that you're beloved by God, that you're loved by him? If I were to ask each one of you, what's the truest thing about you right now? I think if we were briefly honest, you'd have lots of different answers. I think some of us would say, the truest thing about me right now is I'm lonely. I just feel like I don't have depth of relationship with anyone. Or the truest thing about me right now actually is I'm anxious. I can't sleep. I wake up in the morning. I'm just anxious the whole day. I feel like I've not got control of anything. Or the truest thing about me right now is I feel broken. I'm hurting and I'm broken. This is the invitation of Jesus, and it's the invitation of John as we read his gospel. As we allow God's presence to fill us, as we allow Jesus' identity to shape our identity, the truest thing, the most important truth in the whole of Christianity is that the truest thing about each and every one of us in this room is that we're loved by God. That the Father says over us, this is my boy, this is my girl, this is my son. This is my daughter, and I love you. The lies rob you of life. If we truly believe that Jesus has come to give us life in all its fullness, anything that is untrue basically robs us of that life, that we're defined by our brokenness, that we're defined by unforgiveness, that we're defined by bitterness. All of those lies will rob you of life. The truest thing we can grab hold of as we look at the person of Jesus is that our true, our only identity is in the fact that we are loved by him. Let's stand and we're going to pray.